Margaret Gardner, um, Vice-Chancellor of RMIT University, and I'm very pleased to welcome you here this evening to this lecture in the Transforming the Future Public Lectures here in, um, in the truly wonderful uh, Story Hall. Let me begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of this land. The Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation are the traditional custodians of this land on which this event takes place, and we pay our respects to um, those, their elders past and present. This uh, lecture series is, as I just indicated, a public lecture series. It's part of that which universities are traditionally set up to do, and that is not only to create knowledge, not only to um, be engaged in the transformation of knowledge um, in education, but also to be engaged in bringing knowledge within reach through public lectures, of which this is one. Um, and we've been very pleased to host a series of distinguished lecturers to talk to people in this lecture series. And in the way of universities being truly dreadful and forcing them to do master classes before that with students and staff. So by the time they come to this lecture series, they have they have been pummeled in every which way by people uh, in terms of their expertise. They've had to speak of their expertise to other researchers. They've had to communicate with students and their thirst for knowledge and then a broader audience. And I, will, I have to say that every single one has stood up to this pummeling in a most amazing way. And I have no doubt that our distinguished lecturer this evening will be the same. Um, Dr. Ed Blakely, who's here tonight, um, is speaking on Hurricane Katrina, how urban planners work with local communities and government to recover after a major disaster. One could only wish that we had to ask this question less frequently than we have had to uh, in the past few years, not just in Australia but around the world. Um, and unfortunately a feeling that we will be confronting this question rather more regularly than we would, um, we are comfortable to do. Dr. Blakely served as the executive director of the New Orleans recovery from 2007 to 2009 and led the recovery from what was the United States' worst urban natural disaster um, by directing all aspects of the city recovery in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, and most of us can remember vividly the footage about that, but we of course have rather less acquaintanceship with the recovery program. Dr Blakely has over 40 years international experience in this field and has led teams in regional planning and management systems across a number of cities uh, in the United States, Europe and uh, Asia. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Public Administration, a Guggenheim and a Fulbright fellow. He was in 2008 the Elliot Richardson Award winner for Ethics in Government from the American Society for Public Administration and tonight as I've indicated, he's going to share with us the lessons he learnt in the urban reconstruction of New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And we in Australia, who like to specialise, 
as a land of droughts <laughs> and rains. Um, we like to specialise in our own forms of natural disasters uh, and we are very interested in his insights. Um, the authority behind these words about Dr Blakely has assured me that he has been a principal in more disaster recovery operations than any other urban planner on the planet. <clears throat> so I figure that's a sort of a very significant accolade and probably a very great burden that you carried. Um, so I, I think that he's in a good position to provide us with advice and assistance. And at RMIT we have had considerable engagement both through the bushfire CRC and our general interest in community resilience in um, disaster research and recovery. So it is with no more than this that I think we are very privileged to have Dr Blakely to talk to us here this evening about his experience in how we recover effectively from those natural disasters which unfortunately come more frequently and more spectacularly and more disastrously than, than uh, we would wish. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Vice-Chancellor, for your generous introduction. And thank you, Esther Childsworth, for having me come. Uh, Esther is the immediate reason I'm here. Uh, Esther and her team uh, came to visit me in Sydney to talk about research on disasters and uh, almost immediately thereafter, and I think this is Esther's habit, she got me involved. Uh, I wouldn't move on to standing on a street corner to have Esther come along because I might be swept away in a project uh, in no time at all because uh, her charm and her abilities uh, so show through from the first moment you meet her. And thank you, John, for facilitating uh, the day. Um, I want to just run through some things uh, that are about disaster, but they're also about many other things that we need to know about uh, regarding urban living and urban living today. Since most of the world is urban, it's important for us to understand we're knit together in this urbanity in ways we never were when the world uh, was rural. And I want you to forgive me for this uh, rather strong American accent. Uh, I work at the United States Study Center, so it's important for me uh, to have an American accent. Uh, it gives me authenticity I would not otherwise have. Uh, but we now have two ex-female premiers who are running a school on accident, accent reduction. And I think uh, they should have a, a lot of uh, people wanting to come to their schools. They just sent me an email saying they're ready to retrain me. Uh, so, before I get retrained, I'm going to use a little bit of my Sydney accent on you guys. Um, my great-dad lived to be 104 years old. Uh, he was a slave in the United States. As a matter of fact, he was an adult when slavery ended in the United States. And I knew him. Uh, he died when I was a young man. Uh, but I asked him one day, uh, Gramps, how do you get to be so old? He said, by listening to old people. So since I'm approaching my 75th year, I can now say, please listen 
I might know something. Uh, and uh, when I ask my daughters, do I look 75, they say, no, but you used to. So, like Gramps, there may be something here. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit, quite a bit about uh, the book I wrote, My Storm, and many of the things I will allude to come directly or indirectly from that book. Uh, and the book's for sale outside, uh, for those of you who are interested in opportunities to buy some other books on disasters uh, and disaster preparedness. Uh, I've been around the world uh, talking about urban planning and development uh, for over 40 years. I won't say how many over, but for quite a long while, and I've been involved in the master plan of this great region, the one in Sydney, uh, worked a little bit in Perth, uh, in Adelaide, uh, and in Brisbane. So I know the country pretty well, and all the planning that we've done has actually done us very well, even though it falls short of what we want. But if you just think of what happened in the bushfires and what happened in our floods, compared with Katrina, we're looking pretty good because we are much better planned both pre-disaster and post-disaster. So, um, the question always is, anyone really ready for a disaster? It is in the Tohoku region at 2.46 when the quake hit. Hi, I'm Ed Blakely. No one's prepared for the violence you just saw, no matter whether it's natural or man-made. We are not prepared for disaster. We don't anticipate disaster, and that's why it's a disaster, because we can't anticipate it in many ways, but in other ways we can. Um, for the past 600 years, we've been living pretty much on borrowed land and borrowed time. Before Columbus set out to find the Indies and traversing what was the Americas, it was impossible to cross those seas because the world's temperatures were so violent and the seas were so violent, you couldn't make the voyage. But then shortly thereafter, several things came together in the 16th century, 17th century, the ability to sail the seas came together with the ability to make things using steel and iron ore. And when you conflate these things, all of a sudden you have the ability to build where people didn't build before. You had the ability to build most of New York on land that wasn't there. So where Wall Street is today, there was no land there. Where a lot of San Francisco is today, there was no land there. And when you walk to the Sydney Opera House, you'll see little planks that says, this used to be the seashore. So uh, every time you land at the Sydney airport, remember it might disappear any moment. Because it is entirely 
a man-made invention. 70% of the people in the world now live in urban settlements. And those urban settlements are not very dense in some perspectives, but in other perspectives, they're dense because they're so tightly linked together. So taking out one portion of an urban settlement destroys the lot and makes it impossible for you to live in it. So for this 600 years, we have created a capacity that didn't exist before, the capacity to live on land and in landscapes that we couldn't have before. And now Mother Nature is striking back. Now, no matter whether these cycles are the cycles of the ordinary cycles, or whether we're facilitating or making those cycles go faster, it is clear the cycle is changing. And as it changes, it's changing in a habitat that we had not occupied before. The buildings you see in front of you met every international building code. But 130 kilometer winds tore them apart. Because a hundred years ago or so, those buildings would have been built up off the ground and not on the ground with cement and no structure to hold them. Practically every home we build today will not withstand a serious disaster because they were prepared at a time when there were no serious disasters and we have built into areas that had been disastrous many years before, but now we think we're smarter than nature. So I want to put you in the shoes of a recovery director who has to face people who think they know how to beat nature. And the recovery director's job is to take the worst and make it the best. And in Katrina, the worst was pretty bad. The city was utterly destroyed. There were no public facilities open at all. 80% of the city was underwater. So if you could imagine downtown Melbourne stretching all the way to the mountains is completely underwater. Four meters of water covering the city. Everything is soaked through for 57 days. There were fish in five-story buildings. At the end of 57 days, you have rot everywhere. You have sand everywhere. And to make things a little bit worse, I wasn't called to come to New Orleans for 16 months after the disaster. So this is a patient who's not recovering anymore. This is a patient who basically, like the person the other day, has been given up for dead. And there were many people who said, why rebuild New Orleans? And this was not just a simple, silly question. New Orleans had been flooded at least four times before, the most notable one in 1927, when they had to use human beings as sandbags to keep New Orleans from flooding. 
And most of those human beings, many of those human beings were African Americans. So New Orleans has been in trouble before. 50% of the Corps of Engineers budget in the United States is spent on New Orleans to keep the water out of New Orleans. In the 1940s, they did a model of how to keep the water of, out of New Orleans. And that model was destroyed because when they filled the model with water, it didn't work. So rather than face the future, they tended to look the other way. And much of what goes on everywhere, here in this country, in all the countries I visited, is to want to look the other way, not to face the disasters that are pending and not to deal with the present. There's a tendency to say, well, let's go back to the old way, the old rules. And I believe it was Einstein who said, if you keep trying the same experiment and it's not working the same way, you better think you're crazy because you're not going to get anywhere. So we keep trying to reinvent the past rather than invent the future post-disasters. And as a consequence, after a disaster, and I want to see how this works out in New Zealand, but think about it, no government has survived post-disaster. The government in Taiwan fell. The government in Japan fell. The government in New Orleans, out. The government in Victoria, well, I think you know the answer to that one. And the government in Queensland, wow. So when a disaster occurs, it's much like anyone going into mourning. They want to blame someone. And government has set itself up to receive the strongest blows. So no matter how well you do in a disaster, in a disaster recovery, there's a good chance when you're in government, you will be bankrupt in terms of ideas, in terms of your future. And the first thing out of every premier's mouth, the first thing out of the president of the United States' mouth is, we will rebuild, rather than, we want to think about this, and where should we rebuild, how should we rebuild, and what do we know? The Royal Commission that just reported here a few months back, and the one that reported in Queensland, some of you may have seen my editorial on those. I said, these were great royal commissions to look backward, but they were not good commissions to look forward. And had that time and energy been spent on looking forward, we might have different outcomes than we have today. But it's hard to look forward when we don't have good data. It's hard to look forward when we don't have good analogs. And it's hard to look forward when we don't have good tools. So I want to spend most of my, talk, my time talking about this. We are not the first people anywhere to be flooded out or burned out or pushed out of our habitat. 
Baghdad, a city that Americans know fairly well. There are more maps of Baghdad than there are of Des Moines. Um, was a small little city beside the river. But as they grew rich, they grew big. The same thing was true of Angkor Wat. But then they grew really big. And when they grew really big, the river took over. The means of survival were not there. Because what happened was the infrastructure, as they stretched it out, once the river hit that infrastructure, it crumbled and the city crumbled with it. And that is the story of Angkor Wat. It's the story of many places. So what I'm suggesting is we may have built our cities beyond our capability to maintain them, to control them, to manage them. And we may have to rethink city building as we move into the future. That's not to say we shouldn't have dense places, but should all those dense places be served by the same central infrastructure? Something to think about. So as Guy says, it's not possible to build safe buildings unless you build safe communities. So our main job is not to try to build good and better buildings because architects, engineers, can build a safe building, but if there isn't a safe place to put it in, it doesn't make any difference. And this is our problem. We are not in a safe place. This is the ring of fire. We've had many disasters here already, and in 2010 we had more disasters in this area than any time in recorded history. And there are likely to be more. Because the earthquakes, which are the things we really are frightened of, have not hit. The big earthquake has not hit Tokyo. The big earthquake has not yet hit California. And the scientists are anticipating that, probably within the next couple of decades. Cheery thought. So we're all sharing this space. We're all sharing this space in an urban way, as urban places. But as a tsunami comes, as the climate changes, we're sharing the same danger, the same possibilities that we may not make it. So we have a shared destiny, and I think we should come together and learn from all this. And this is a primary role of the university and Esther and her team and other teams and that other second grade school in Boston, what's it called, MIT, uh, might come together and share knowledge about how you deal realistically with disasters. How do you deal with the fact that the temperature was last year was the hottest year on record? So how do we deal with this big trouble? We can't deal with it in the same old way. We can't assume that we can build next to water and build slab houses where the water runs through them and runs faster than it did before and survive. And I'm not saying we shouldn't build next to rivers, but shouldn't we do what the old Queenslanders did that rather than do what we're doing now using the cheapest possible method of construction? 
So the future shouldn't be this. This is uh, my plane right here, about to leave Sendai, didn't make it. Um, and do we rebuild major uh, systems like this? How do we recover the charm of Christ Church? How do we deal with future rescues of future communities here in Australia and around the world? Well, we have to do this by having people who are skilled. And there are a lot of skills in this university in architecture, project management, engineering, and many other disciplines. But bringing those disciplines together to create a new discipline is something no one has done yet. To put together people who know, as we know how to make bridges, as we know how to make many systems, how to remake a place after it has been hit by a disaster. So the first thing people want is speed. And the next thing they need is that vital infrastructure recovered and put back into place. And sometimes those things are at loggerheads. It's very difficult to do them both sanely and well. It took two months just to get the water out of New Orleans. It took another six months or so to get telephone service working. But much of that could have been done much faster had people in New Orleans assumed that at some point in the not too distant future, they'd have a disaster. And had they decentralized some of those services, they wouldn't have been in the same condition. So efficiency of government doesn't come after the disaster, it comes before the disaster. And helping communities as we are now with sustainability, which Melbourne's doing a great job at, helping them position themselves so that if man-made or natural disaster occurs, they know all the steps that they need to take. Much as we have now sustainability coordinators, we need disaster coordinators to assist us in making better places. Emergency is a thing that happens right after. First you have the rescue, then you have the emergency. And during the emergency, your concern is stabilizing the situation. But most of what we've been trained to do is rescue. People like taking people off the top of houses, digging them out from under the rubble. But they don't like, and the newspapers don't cover the emergency period. There's nothing fancy about it. You're restoring buildings. And the rebuilding period, the newspapers don't cover unless somebody's stealing the money. Then they cover it. But other than that, the rebuilding period is a civic process that's fraught with many dangers. I'll show you all my wounds later. But in this process, here's the mayor, here's the state director of emergency preparedness, and there I am, the meat in that sandwich. The state director of emergency preparedness is interested in making sure New Orleans does not steal the money. And the mayor is interested in getting as much money as he can to do the repairs as fast as he can. Those interests collide. And you've got to get people on the same page because you have a collapse of the civic. And I saw it here. 
that the civic institutions like the city and township and so forth and schools and so on that work perfectly fine before the disaster are not capable of working very effectively to do the recovery. So you need to meet a mega team, a team that knows how to reposition and not just rebuild. And here are my points of repositioning, and I think they're important. The first is to establish the notion that this is a continuing process. People from Black Saturday will be in Black Saturday a decade from now. But the government will sh has probably already shut off the funding for emotional relief. But that doesn't just stop all of a sudden. There needs to be a continuing process of allowing people to feel that the government cares. And many people don't want to express it. And particularly if you come from a culture like the Japanese culture, the American culture, where expressing these things is not done, it's very difficult to cope with that. But it's very important that you do this and to bring safety and security. And when I said that in New Orleans, they said, when are you going to bring back the police? I said, well, the first thing I'm going to do for your security is bring back the schools. So we get people on the street. So we have a functioning, vital community. The police cannot make a community. But when you have a community, crime goes down. When you don't have a community, crime goes up. So making a community secure and safe is very important post-disaster. And looting is not the paradigm we should be at. And that is the very paradigm that the newspapers are about, the TV. I remember in Queensland, they had me on TV asking me about the looting. They weren't asking me about the recovery and how the shops would be open. They're asking if they're being looted. And I said, well, is it looting when a mother goes into a store and gets some milk for a baby? Is that looting? Is it looting when somebody gets uh, a, one of those rubber boats and uses it to float out? Is that looting or is that survival? So many times we have our heads in the wrong place. And then we have to really think about what the economy was in the place and how we're going to make it different so that if we have a disaster and even post-disaster, we have to have a different economy. New Orleans' economy was based on tourism, and I'm going to show you later that we moved away from that. But when you have an economy that's based on one thing, and this is a big lesson for all of Australia, when you have, I don't care whether it's coal or tourism or whatever, if you have a disaster and that prop's knocked out, and the prop for us is just change in price, you don't really have any place to go. So you have to have a multi-speed economy. And so the first job for me in New Orleans was finding out how to create an economy that would last into the next century and move away from the economy that they'd become dependent on in the last century. And I'll show you later that we did that. And then building the right infrastructure. The right infrastructure is not to restore the old infrastructure is to build a new infrastructure for a new century. And that new infrastructure is more optic cable, more broadband, more stuff for the next century 
not restoring the stuff for the old century, and establishing a new settlement pattern. And I'll show you what we did in New Orleans in that respect. So we bundled all this in New Orleans, put it together, and made a new approach, not aimed at the New Orleanians, whose median age was 50-something or other, but aimed at these people. Because if we didn't, that's what was going to happen. And if you go to Kobe, they'll tell you the biggest loss was young people who moved to Tokyo and environs and didn't return. You go to any place where they've had a disaster, their biggest loss has been younger citizens and many older citizens. Young people are impatient and old people don't have the years to rebuild. So you have to focus your re recovery on the people and on the environment. What is the new environment that's going to be resilient? That's a different question for New Orleans. It's a different question for Queensland. It's a different question for Victoria. And establishing that new environment is larger than the community boundaries. The jurisdiction, the city boundary, is not the environmental boundary. And in too many cases, we try to make those things the same, and it won't work. People do have to be involved, but they need to be involved in a template. A map that makes sense, that says what's likely, what's possible, and get them involved in the future, not in the past. So what we did in New Orleans was to try to think outside the square. Disregard the square. What kind of city would you want to have here, located in this place? No matter what was done before, what can we do in the future? And one of the things we did was we pointed New Orleans south to South America, to the Panama Canal, which lies just below New Orleans, but very sh few ships from the Panama Canal were coming to New Orleans. And the reason for that was our port problems. So we started to remake New Orleans as a port city again, but to service the new Panama Canal and not the old one. So we had to think outside the square. We had to think about how can we rebuild a city can we rebuild it all? And the answer to that was no. So we've got to select targets, areas that make sense for rebuilding versus platitudes, we will rebuild. That my home is my castle. But if your castle is gonna block the stream, then is it your castle or is it the ruin of the community? So we selected 16 target areas. And in these areas is where we chose to rebuild the city. Now, if you look at these areas, and you'll see in a map a little bit later, this is the high ground in New Orleans. This area here was not inhabited before the late 1950s, early 1960s. This was all marshland. And when they built the freeway through, developers, and I don't want to throw any rocks at developers, some of my best friends are developers, said, this is a nice place to develop some housing. It's all marshland. We can pump some of the water out here and put some slab houses up, and it's all be right, mate. Well, 
this area is totally inundated. And already, uh, right after the floods, there are weeds and cypress trees and so forth trying to reestablish themselves there. Nature. The same thing's true of the Ninth Ward. Down here, this area is area, you can see, this is all marshland. How come you don't see marsh there? Because people decide to settle on it. Not because it is not marshland. Now I want you to pay somewhat close attention to this because I made a talk in Brisbane in 2005 that sounded very much like this and I showed exactly where that flood would be. So you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out where you should rebuild. You should rebuild where nature tells you to rebuild and that's what we did in New Orleans. And we built on the concept that many of the urban planners, and this was not my concept. When I got there, the people in New Orleans said, this is what we want to have. We want to build what many urban planners would call new urbanism. We want to build a community where we can be safe inside the community. Evacuate in, don't evacuate out. Build a community where the schools, the churches, and all those kinds of places are places where you can rescue. So the cluster concept. And we developed three target area, uh, three kinds of target areas. First were the rebuilds. That's where everything was leveled. Ninth Ward, East New Orleans. And then the redevelop areas were those areas where they were flooded, the areas were a little bit shaky, long before the floods, kind of run down neighborhoods and so on. So urban redevelopment was a key. And then these areas here were areas that were in pretty good shape, downtown New Orleans, renewed. So in downtown New Orleans, we rebuilt Bourbon Street and so forth. Didn't take much, but the thing that the mayor added to Bourbon Street was cleanup. They cleaned up Bourbon Street and every night they sprayed it, I think they're still doing this, with a nice uh, hygienic perfume so it smelled like Disneyland. So uh, I believe the National Basketball Championships have just concluded uh, there this evening. I don't know who won, but I'm sure there was a big crowd and the place smells real good. So, so that template, excuse me, that template, that notion of building target areas was not just a notion of building them, but how do you build them? Here's how the citizens come in. How do we want to rebuild our community, our neighborhoods? And these are basically architects working with citizens, designing their neighborhoods back on higher ground in a better way using this template. And here are others. This one, and when Esther goes there, most of this is complete. Neighborhoods are filled back in. But you have to have a way of explaining this to people, and I call it the mantra, that over and over on radio, on television, every speech you say the same thing. The term target area has to be used. You don't call them redevelopment areas, target area. The term safety and security has to be used, and we had five terms we used over and over and over and over again so that people 
knew what to expect, and they could measure our progress. The other thing we discovered is that very much of public administration that I learned in the university and learned in business school and so forth is run lean and mean, get slim, don't have an extra nickel, don't have a spare part, this is the new way, you know, just on time. Well, what happens when you have a little disruption in that system? Well, our disruption was a flood. We had one week of cash in the bank, so the city was literally bankrupt the day after the flood. And the animals that survive floods and things are usually pretty fat. So a little fat doesn't hurt. Little redundancy in your systems doesn't hurt. But also, a little access to money doesn't hurt. So the mayor asked me what was I going to do first. I said, I'm going to take you to New York. He says, well, we're getting all our money from Washington. I said, well, they make the money in New York. They send it to Washington, mayor. So we're going to go to the source. And that's the mayor and me with the head of the New York Stock Exchange. Notice my eyes are focused very clearly <laughs> on the money. We got $220 million on a handshake. I think it's all been paid back now. Much better than the banks did, by the way. We had to reinvent government. We had to bring in a private firm to control all of our expenditures, to control the rebuilding process so that we could pay attention to governing. Government is not a builder. It's a controller of building, but it is not a builder. And the biggest argument I had in New Orleans was that our planning department and our infrastructure department and those other departments were not going to do the rebuilding. They could manage the rebuilding process, they could do the inspection, but they had never built the whole city. And that argument was still going on when I left and the new mayor came in and he scrapped this company and to my knowledge very little has been built since. You need an efficient team to do the rebuilding. And we need to train people because even this company, as good as it was, and it had built in Iraq and built around the world, was not prepared to deal post-disaster. So getting skilled people to do this is something we need to do. We were able to take all of our public investments, put them together, and to do much better with them than we would have done had we tried to do all of our projects separately. So we mixed our funding. So when we're building a school, I ask, does the school need a library? So why are we building a library? Why don't we build the school and the library together? And where's the shopping center going in? A block away from the school? Well, why don't we build them adjacent to one another? And where's the fire department going to be located? And why does the police department have to have a different building than the fire department? Well, we've never done it that way, sir. The people who are the quickest to figure out the best way to do things actually were the fire department because they said response time is everything. Being in the right position at the right time saves lives.
So we'll go along with this, Doc. We don't have to have a separate firehouse. We just got to be in the right place. So we have to th think about retooling government. And what we did was we took the t old places where housing was and built new housing systems in these locations. And this is what Esther will be looking at when she goes. So that rather than have a place where there's a house here and a house over here, we build the houses together, build whole blocks at a time. And what we discovered, if you build one side of the block, people will build the other side. And once one block is built, private sector will come in and build the next one, the next one, and the next one. But if there's vacancies, nothing gets rebuilt. And we had to rebuild the entire economy based on specific sites. But the most important thing we did, and this was not a success, but I tried my darndest, what I called insourcing. Why do we have to have people from Texas of all places coming to Louisiana? And even worse, a few from Mississippi, where they got wrong accents, coming to New Orleans to rebuild our city. Why can't we insource? Why can't we use local people, local resources? This was our primary resource in New Orleans. I'm not kidding, 40,000 vacant homes before the flood. They showed this picture over, on, over, over again on television saying, repair has not begun in New Orleans. Here's an illustration of it. Now this was in the middle of the city where no water ever touched it. This is an example of Blakely's failure. He hasn't rebuilt the city, hasn't repaired the houses. Well, that house was there 10 years before the flood, looking pretty much like that. So we started a new industry of re home rehabilitation. Why can't local people build homes? And I wasn't as successful as this as I want it to be. My notion was to use a program we used in California. And that program was called self-help housing. We bring six families together and they rebuild the houses together. And they have a supervisor. The supervisor helps them with the plumbing, the electricity, all that kind of stuff. But nobody can move in until the last house is finished. Those are now the safest communities in California to live in. Because the neighbors are real neighbors. So rebuilding housing and rebuilding commercial areas Believe it or not, we were importing food to New Orleans to feed people in New Orleans. And New Orleanians said, I think we got food here. How come we're not eating our own food? Because the federal government contracts had get it at the cheapest price. The contract should have said, get it at the smartest price. Get it where it rebuilds community. And why don't we build our facilities together? Because the federal government will give us money for schools, they'll give us money for hospitals, they'll give us money for this, they'll give us money for that. Why not give us one bucket of money and we build community facilities? And you put a school in it, but that school can be a senior citizen center at some point. It might even be a shopping center at another point. 
and build community. This is a community drawn drawing done by a local architect is the way they wanted the community to look and to use the local fabric. That's the kind of density I like. And to build achievable housing, not just affordable housing. Now, the couple of blocks you can't see, but the whole idea was to assemble land in the neighborhoods that had a lot of vacancies, buy that land, people who lived in areas that were flooded, give them opportunities to trade the land that was flooded for this land, give them a rebuilding loan and a forgivable $80,000 bonus, 60000 to $80,000 bonus, if they stayed in the place for three years. A lot of people opted to do that, so now you have complete intact neighborhoods versus people spread out all over the place. So the recovery strategy should always be aimed at better. This was public housing in New Orleans as it was. This is as it's becoming now. So public housing shouldn't look any different from any other kind of housing. And that's what we're trying to do here in Carlton with the public housing here. I've been a consultant on that project. So you shouldn't know where low-income people live by the kind of housing. So people should be mixed. And so every public investment has to be accountable. What were you trying to achieve? And we measured everything, schools, so on, every dollar that was spent. We also got people in the community at every level into the recovery. So we restarted neighborhood markets, where there was a market before, like your Victoria markets and other your Brunswick markets. So we got those going before with the local people running them, operating them. I even wrote checks out of my own checkbook. Oh, my wife's here. I shouldn't say this. But uh, to get these markets started so that people would start trading with one another, trusting one another, and rebuilding. Building neighborhoods where everyone shared the same back garden. So, but the economy, you can rebuild a city and everyone wants the housing rebuilt. I said, we're focusing on the wrong thing. If we don't rebuild the economy, it doesn't matter how many houses we rebuild. So we built citywide programs, housing programs in source, community service centers, all this kind of thing. Rebuilding the river and the riverfront. So the riverfront is a good place to walk, play, and to make money. The performing arts were the first thing we rebuilt. This is the home of Louis Armstrong, Tina Turner, people of my vintage. You guys don't know who those folks were. Mahalia Jackson, real music. We had to rebuild this. These are the keys to recovery. So a new performing arts district is coming up. And an advanced technology center, the Mars rocket ship is being built in New Orleans. But the most important thing was the rebuilding of the port of New Orleans. To make a port that would service the Panama Canal, service the future and not the past and to rebuild the hospital complex, the veterans uh, LSU hospital complex from a charity hospital complex to the largest hospital complex in the South working on tropical diseases. Why tropical diseases? Because most people in the world live in the tropics. 
Why tropical diseases? Because this is where we had the most hospital expertise. Why tropical diseases? Because New Orleans is in the south and in the tropics and people have those diseases. So this will be the tropical disease center, hopefully for the world. This is what it looked like before. This is what it looks like now. People said I didn't do anything. So, did we make money at this? Here's the non-target areas. Here's the target areas and expenditures. So every dollar we invested in the target areas brought us 180, what is it, 180, 38 dollars in return. And the non-target areas, 104. So by making settlements, complete communities, the private sector invested its money there. So the private sector invests where the public sector gives the signals. And you have to establish a public-private partnership to do that. So if we're going to do this and do it well for the world, we need an international human settlement code so that people aren't told they're crazy by doing the kind of things we did in New Orleans. This is the kind of code that people can understand. It's clear like the International Building Code. And it says, what are the good places, the bad places? This is New Orleans. This is what a code would look like. The habitable areas, bright green, and the not habitable areas, and bright red. And this is Melbourne. So if those of you who are taking notes, I'll give you a slide to you. And Melbourne, the real problem is heat, as you can see. So public policy comes for strong community participation, public-private partnerships like you have with the Melbourne, uh, the Committee for Melbourne, and you have to create that civic across generations, and I think the Committee for Melbourne is off to a good straight in that, because this is who we're doing this for, not for us, but for them. You have to have a lot of balls in the air, and if you do, you can wear these shoes. Thank you. Thank you.